0: ear, eyes to see, and hearts to respond to your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. So many weeks ago, we talked about what it was to live a lukewarm life and how do we cure the lukewarm life. And then we talked about, so we don't want to be lukewarm, we want to be fully devoted followers of Jesus, and what does that look like? And we talked about how the Christian life fully devoted to by Jesus will bear the fruit of the Spirit, right? We talked about the fruit of the Spirit. The first one is love, which is a major theme throughout Scripture. But second on that is joy. That a fruit of the Holy Spirit working in your life is that you will live a life of joy. And remember, we talked about how That does not mean that everything in life is going to be wonderful. That does not mean that we're not going to have concerns or needs or struggles. But that Jesus promises that that he will turn our mourning into joy. Remember we talked about the turning. And so this morning I want to take a deeper look into joy. But before I do that, I have to explain something. Because the role of the preacher is not to come up with all the things that I want to say and then go find scripture that will support the point that I want to make and say, here you go, here is a message for you. I I can't cherry pick what I want the scripture to say. It is my job to declare what is in the scripture and in the text that God has led me towards. And so as I read and as I study and as I pray, I don't want to declare the things that I have in my heart. I want to declare what is in the text and what God is saying through that. Okay? The reason that I say that is because as I approached this text that says rejoice in the Lord always, I had visions of lollipops and gumdrops and we would all get together and we'd all be rejoiced and we'd all be happy and we'd drink our coffee and we will, okay, we'll get there. But the message that I am going to give you this morning is much different than the one that I thought when I first began my study okay? So there is a different tone. And so what I want us to do is pull your thinking caps out of your out of your pockets. I hope you brought them with you this morning. And put your thinking caps on because we're going to go touch on some really deep things. And I need you to follow me because it is in the depth that we will be able to find how we live a life in rejoicing, okay? So Hang with me and we'll get there. And I'm sure that if we, if, if we commit to this endeavor, you will not be disappointed in what we find. So let me give you the outline right away. It's just three things. Rejoice in the Lord always. This is the overarching principle. Rejoice in the Lord always. Don't worry and Think. Okay, do you got that? Rejoice in the Lord always. Don't worry and think. So let's go. Rejoice in the Lord always. Look at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again. Rejoice. So we know what rejoicing is. We're, we're happy. We're, we're clapping. We're excited. We're singing together. Rejoice. Rejoice. Remember, we talked we can rejoice in the Lord because it is Christ who came as our substitute that paid for our sin. He died on the cross. He suffered and died for our sins so that we could have eternity with him. And that is something that is worth rejoicing, is it not? And so Paul is saying rejoice in knowing the God of creation and that he saved you and he has rescued you from the penalty of your sin. But Paul doesn't just say rejoice. He says, let me say that again. Rejoice. He doesn't just say rejoice. He says, let me emphasize this for you. I'm going to say it again one more time just to be clear. You need to rejoice. So there's a little show that they have at our house. It's not like a long show. They have these six or seven minute episodes. It's on Netflix. It's called Old Enough. If you want to find joy, go watch that show. It's wonderful. It'll make you smile. But in Japan, they send two, three, four-year-old children out to run errands. It's a cultural thing from what I understand. And they they send this kid, so they send them a half a kilometer down the road to go pick up noodles from the store, okay? And then so they, 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 you get this picture where they record this little child going down the road and getting to the stoplight and going to the right and then walking in the store and paying their money and it's, it's cute, it'll make you smile, it's wonderful. But at the beginning of every, every errand that the kids run, the mom gets down And looks at the child and says, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go down the road and you're going to turn at the stoplight. And then down the hill is the store and you're going to go buy the noodles. It's in aisle eight. And they give them the instructions. And then they ask the child, so now tell me, what are you going to do? And the child says, I'm going to go here and then here and here. Because the mom wants to know that the instruction is clear. Right, She wants to know that the child knows exactly what it is. And so for emphasis, she wants that repeated. And this is essentially what Paul is saying to us. Here's what I'm saying, but this is so important that I'm going to say it again. I don't just want it once, I want it twice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And one more time, rejoice there's an emphasis he's trying to get this home he paul is saying the christian life should be marked by joy so this is the overarching principle as christians our lives should be marked by joy we should rejoice in the lord always so rejoice in the lord always secondly don't worry Look what he says in verse 6. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So He says, rejoice always, now don't worry. Here's... Paul is not saying that when you give your life to Christ, that your life will be without concerns, that there won't be issues that arise, that there aren't going to be things that you're going to have to figure out. He says, you're going to have concerns, but don't worry about it. You see, there's an issue, a distinction between worry and and concern it's good to have concerns we all have concerns we live in a fallen world where things aren't right and there's times when we just have to have concerns but worry is something that we shouldn't do worry is when we take our concerns and we essentially make that a false god that we worship Because we know that last week God said, I will turn your weeping into joy. And when we worry, we are doubting that God can turn that for us, aren't we? We are doubting, saying, God, I know that you're God, but I'm not sure you can do it here. Yes concerns, no to worry. And what does Paul say? Don't worry, but pray. Right? He says, don't worry, but go to God in prayer and bring those concerns to God in prayer. And you know what will happen when you bring those concerns to God in prayer? The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ. So let me, uh, this is a, just a self-assessment. As you are, are thinking about yourself, I want you to consider the amount of worry uh, that you have in your life. From, on a scale from 1 to 10, what is your concern? Where would you rate yourself? 10 being you're worried about everything, and 1 is you're not worried about anything. Just think to yourself, what is your worry level today? Okay. Everyone got a number? Okay. Now, here's the next question. Be honest. Okay. So, you're, whatever number you are in worry, on a level of prayer, saying ten is I bring every single concern to God in prayer. To one, I don't say bring anything to God in prayer. Where is, are those numbers? Where does your prayer life fit in comparison to your worry? That's between you and God. I'm not going to have you fill it out on the connection card. I'm not going to have you like, we're not going to put that on the website. That's between you and God. But my question is, where does your prayer lie in, in comparison to your worry? This is what he's saying. Don't hold on to your concerns. Bring them to God and he'll take care of that. He will guard you. Because remember, last week, he's going to turn it. So, rejoice in the Lord always. And then don't worry. And lastly, think. Okay? And if here's, This is the moment that I spoke about. It is this that got me twisted up a little bit, okay? This is the thing where I was like, wait a second. Think, what do do you mean by think? let's look here in this verse, starting in verse eight. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. You see, Paul gives a list, and he starts whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right. All these things, he gives this long list, and then he says, think about it. Think about those things. And so as we approach this, we need to start with the list because the first thing that Paul says is whatever is true. Friends, we need to have a discussion about this because Jesus when he was before Pontius Pilate he says, "Are you the king of the Jews?" and he says Jesus said, what you say is true. And Pilate looked at him and said, what is truth? Friends, we live in a day and age where truth is relative and we have no idea what is true and what is false. And this is so important for us to understand because Jesus said, I am the way and I am the truth. And Jesus says about Satan, he is the father of lies. And when he tells lies, he is speaking his native tongue because that's all the enemy can do is lie. And so when we talk about this spectrum of, of whatever is true, we are making a choice are we going to listen to god or are we going to listen to satan and the world there is a clear distinction between truth and a lie as defined by jesus why is this so important why am i making such a big deal about truth friends we live in a postmodern culture. OK? So bear with me for a little bit. So we had a time from roughly the beginning of the world up to, let's say, 1700. These numbers can vary dependent upon who you ask, that we would consider pre-modern. OK? Pre-modern world says, "Look, there's a sun, there has to be a god of the sun, so there's a sun-god. There's a river. Like, you just attribute whatever happened. You can't explain it, so you contribute it to a god. We would consider that time period what is the pre-modern time period. And then from roughly 1700 to 1900, there was this, this revolution in science and all these advances that occurred, and we would consider that the modern age. And the modern age said, everything can be explained by science, And we can look at everything, and there's got to be some sort of scientific explanation for everything, and we can prove all truth based on something that we can test and prove scientifically. Okay? And that probably continues some into the 19th century as well. But then, about 1900, this idea of postmodernism, began to arise and become common in our culture. And here's what postmodernism is marked by. It's marked by skepticism. It is marked by doubts. It is questioning anything that has been established. Any institution that has ever been established must be undercut because it's been established prior to this postmodern age. And it is marked by the fact that there is no absolute objective moral truth all truth is relative so what's good for Joe over here that's his morality but mine is different and it's okay that we have different moralities because there is no moral objective standard that each one of us can just choose our own morality and whatever is right for us is right for us and what's right for you is right for you and that's okay Okay, are you following me? The guy who is largely um, credited with being the father of postmodernism is a guy by the name of Friedrich Nietzsche, okay? Friedrich Nietzsche is a guy who popularized the term, God is dead, so he said God is dead, and he had lots of writings. And I I'm, I'm just want to bullet point, he wrote an essay called The Madman. You can read this on your own. I'll summarize it for you, where he talks about the implications of the death of God. So he says, we've just killed God, now what, what happens? And he talks about how now that God's dead, we've unchained the earth from the sun there is no up and down left we have to light lanterns in the morning because there is no way for us to understand the reality that we had as it was no longer exists there is nothing that is objective that we can anchor truth to right because there is no truth And as much as I would disagree with Nietzsche's worldview, his application of what the death of God is like is absolutely true because when you take away when you take away absolute truth, what you end up is with anarchy and chaos. So Nietzsche said, let's kill God. And when we kill God, when we take a moral objective out out of society, we end up with chaos. And Nietzsche said that because we've killed God, the 20th century would be the most violent century in the history of mankind. By the way, just for, for the sake of, of background, Nietzsche grew up in a Lutheran home and his father was a Lutheran minister. Why is this important? Because there was another young Austrian who grew up in the church. He grew up as a Roman Catholic. He was confirmed And as a young man, he started to read and study the work of Nietzsche. And because he thought, he held this view that there is no right and there is no wrong, it infected his mind so much that he decided it was okay to exterminate millions and millions of Jews. Because when you look at the history of Adolf Hitler, Nietzsche is someone that he always was referring to. He said, this is an influence of my life. Because he said, there is no right or wrong. There is no one to tell me that exterminating Jewish lives is wrong. And if we hold to this worldview, how in the world can I say that it's wrong? This is why we need to think because if we are to live in a world with morals, in a, in a world where there is right and wrong, if we have a moral law, there must be a moral lawgiver who can sustain and give us the truth. Because God has given us the truth. And as much as Nietzsche wants God to be dead, friends, God is not dead. And He has given us a moral law as defined in the Bible. And the moral law is not just a list of rules that He gave to us to make life difficult for us, it is not a list of rules that He said, Here, I want to make you feel guilty. I want to show you that I'm better than you. He says, this is a moral law based on my character. And when we choose to live in a world where everything is relative, we deny God and we choose to live in that chaos. Friends, we are living we are living today in this postmodern swap. And Jesus says, don't allow this, don't allow this postmodern, don't allow this the lies of the enemy to 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 fog your thinking. Think about the truth. And what is the truth? Jesus is the truth. There's a whole long list of things, whatever is admirable, whatever is noble, but the truth is the most important because if we take a relative view of the truth, then there is no moral, there is no objective way to judge what is honorable, there's no, moral, no, no objective way to judge any of the things. And in fact, if we deny the truth, then going to the word of God doesn't matter at all because what in the world does that even mean? If we are saying there is no objective truth, then why are we even here? What do the words that I'm saying even mean? It doesn't mean anything. You can just take it for what it is. Think. When you go to the Word, when you open up your Bible, come humbly and say, God, I want you to speak to me. I want you to show me what is true. And friends, when we do come to the Bible, when we do come to that and we say, Lord, I'm going to humbly allow you to shape my life to fit into what your word says. If I can just share something, we are a culture and a nation that is divided. We are divided on all sorts of things. So the question that I have for you, let me just say, we are divided politically, aren't we? We are divided politically. When you walk in the voting booth, do you bring your Bible with you? I don't mean you need to bring your Bible in there and then look up verses for each candidate. What I'm saying is, are you allowing the Bible to tell you what you think and what you understand based on the issues that we're facing today? I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. If you are not looking the Bible to see what does the Bible say about the given issue, what does the Bible speak to about this or that or this issue, if we're not allowing the Bible to guide what we think, what are we allowing to let us guide? What is guiding us if it's not the Bible? Again, I want you to think about that. Because here's the deal, if you can go to the Bible and you could say, I went to the Bible and this is what I think, and that's different than me, That's okay, right? Like, I can respect, you went to the Bible, you humbly went to the Lord, and the Lord took you to a different place. We don't have to agree on everything. We don't always have to agree on everything, right? But are we getting it from the Bible? Are we allowing God to lead us to these places, or are we just choosing what we like and feel and what feels good to us in that moment? Because you know what will heal our nation? When the church comes together around the truth. And we hold up the truth together, even if there's political differences. For the name of Jesus, and we allow Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, to bring healing to us. You see, that's what Paul said. Paul, when he wrote to Corinth, by the way, Corinth was this postmodern church too, and they had all sorts. Read through it; there's like a, a like a crazy drama soap opera of what was going on there. And he says, "I didn't come with the wisdom of the world. I didn't come with well reasoned, thought out arguments with eloquent speech." I came with one thing, and that's the message of Christ and in Him crucified. He says, because God chose to change lives through the foolishness of preaching. It is through the foolishness of the proclamation of God's Word. And He doesn't just mean, He doesn't just mean here on Sunday morning, When we're in the coffee shop talking, are we willing to bring the word of God to our friends who we disagree with? Not to prove them wrong, but to allow God's word to penetrate their hearts, to show them truth. And sometimes when we do that, the truth is revealed to us. Am I willing to Proclaim God's word to others in my life. Because here's the thing. When we think about this, when we allow God's word to just saturate our hearts, what does he do? He brings joy. He brings joy. Like, our Jesus is worth the joy. The fact that the God who created the universe, who we rejected, by the way, just on a secondary note, look at the postmodern. that started in the garden because what did the serpent say to Eve? He said, did God really say that? Skepticism, questioning the truth, and Eve fell because of the doubts, the questioning of the truth. Sorry, I got lost there. So anyway, this God who who was created the earth perfectly and saw his creation rebel against him in defiance says, "I'm going to come." and I'm going to lay down my life so that they might have life. Even though they rejected me, even though they rebelled, and even though they continue in acts of rebellion, because we won't be perfect in our actions until we reach eternity, right? But God says, I love you, and I find joy in you. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. If we can't find joy in Jesus, we will never find it. Jesus loves you, and He paid the price for your sin. So let's rejoice in the Lord always. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Um,